Welcome to Third Fridays, the monthly legal talk show from Lois LLC featuring attorney Christian Seesaw. This is the original forum in which real attorneys discuss workers' compensation issues, share their opinions, and engage in colorful conversations. This show showcases diverse perspectives of attorneys handling workers' comp cases, including case law trend, practical litigation strategies, and hot topics. Here's your host, Christian Seesaw. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the May 2021 third Friday's podcast edition and it's very very exciting for me because it's been a long time since we've hosted uh, one in person here in the kill room at Lois Law Firm Uh, and my guest today is uh, Associate Attorney Ian Haberstroh so uh, welcome to the show Ian. Thank you very much Christian for having me on the show first time. Yeah and you know when we talked about this month's episode it really was born out of something that really plagues employers across the entire state, and that is getting uh, employees back to work. Right. Right. So, if you're a claimant, you know, Ian, uh, I know you've had a lot of experience in this industry, and you've dealt with the, this type of claimant. When a claimant receives that first indemnity benefit check for two thirds of what he made, yep. tax free. What does that claimant think? Like, wh- what are some of the things that are going through his or her head? Uh, obviously, they are pretty much being incentivized to almost stay out of work, uh, depending on um, how much money they're actually receiving. Um, so, obviously, from a carrier's perspective, uh, in order to combat that, to try to um, encourage a claimant to go back to work we would want to find a way to either reduce their weekly benefits or suspend uh, where possible. Yeah, and I think that's like the basic structure, right? Because a claimant's doctor will say 100% entitling the claimant to that two-thirds benefit. And so they get that check, like you said, like, you know, if it's tax-free, working versus not working, it may seem appealing to that claimant to continue getting that check as opposed to working and getting even more money, right? Right. So sometimes employers, carriers will contact a treating physician, say like, can this person do light duty? Can this person do full duty? Now, is the treating doctor required to even respond to that? No, definitely not. And I don't think they're incentivized to do that as either. Uh, For the most part, obviously, uh, I guess an unwritten rule would be that treating doctors uh, would prefer to keep treating and billing for treatment that sometimes is unnecessary and not warranted. Uh, so I think a treating doctor would be very unlikely or less likely to try to respond to a type of request coming from a carrier or employer like that. So you're right. You, I guess they would, in thinking that they can continue to treat, continue to bill a workers' Definitely. compensation carrier, what you're saying is they are motivated to keep writing those numbers, one, zero, zero, total, unable to work. Definitely, yes. And sometimes, even if it's for an honest claimant that does want to go back to work, how can that affect, you know, the the progress of a particular case? If the the claimant's doctor maybe in his or her heart believes the claimant can do some type of work but keeps taking them out of work, how would you say that affects a particular worker's compensation case? Well, obviously, it impacts the carrier in a poor way because then the claimant really is not incentivized to return to work. Um, so, obviously, that, 
I, I don't really see any benefit. Uh, obviously, it creates issues too with billing for unnecessary treatment. Um, so, from a carrier's perspective, uh, that is something that we definitely want to try to mitigate and prevent going forward in a case. So, you're right, and then I guess there are a variety of tools that you know we can to uh, you know leverage our position and, and create the chaos that we need to, to close a particular case. But the most basic uh idea really and you know uh, forgive us uh listeners and, and viewers because typically this podcast is designed to be a 201 level podcast but to to get to that level right that first step is a good ime right and what well how would you define a good ime in so obviously we want the uh, ime to be objective for purposes of credibility uh, you want an IME who reviews diagnostic studies, who reviews the treatment records, who reviews the operative reports. Um, many times, uh, and this is also important too, that uh, they need to do a thorough examination and document the uh, types of tests they're performing. Range of motion is very uh, important to a lot of judges. Um, so you want a thorough report uh, that a judge can look at and find to be credible to make sure that the IME actually did a proper examination and reviewed proper diagnostic studies. Uh, also, history taking is important as well because uh, sometimes there can be things that pop up and um, a claimant can report a, a new accident or even return to work. Uh, and these are all things that a good IME does, uh, thorough history, diagnostic studies, thorough examination. And then on top of that, obviously, you want very credible conclusions. Um, so you want the doctor's conclusions to be consistent with the examination findings. Uh, one, obviously, is degree of disability is always, always important to us. Um, and typically, we would like those to be consistent with the guidelines criteria for degree of disability. Uh, but then on top of that, you want the, the proper treatment re uh, requests or recommendations. Uh, are they finding the claim to be at maximum medical improvement, depending on how old the case is, how long it's been since the last surgery, if surgery was performed. Um, so there are many factors that a law judge would look at in an IME report. Uh, and then when it actually goes to testimony, you hope that the IME also testifies consistently with his report to support his conclusions in the, the report itself. Yeah, and you know whether or not that actually happens certainly varies across cases. Uh, but let's assume that, you know, that beautiful description you gave of a great IME report uh, exists in our phantom or make-believe hypothetical case, okay. uh, the IME says uh, a partial disability or the claimant can work light duty or sedentary uh, ability exists, uh, what do we then do uh, knowing that the treating doctor keeps taking the claimant out of work? Uh, we file the RFA2 requesting a hearing. We go to the hearing. Uh, we request a reduction in the rate of the CCP down to the IME's opinion. Uh, we request cross-examination of the treating doctors who have provided up-to-date medical. Um, and ultimately for uh, tactics purposes, uh, hopefully the IME has given uh, a relatively low opinion on degree of disability, uh, which will benefit the carrier because that means that we can reduce the benefits uh, down to something that uh, may encourage a claimant to go back to work based on the fact that their benefits will have been reduced by a significant amount. Um, and that is something that uh, obviously gives the carrier a lot of leverage. 
And so you're right. You know, leverage in, in the form of an IME report to reduce a compensation rate, you know, we look at that types of, of scenario and say, well, if a doctor says that you're completely unable to do any type of work, that's a 100% disability, you get about two-thirds of your gross salary subject to any statutory maximums or minimums. And we talked about how a claimant may be incentivized to take, let me, let me take the two-thirds mm-hmm. tax-free and sit at home. Reducing that benefit creates an even greater divide between what the claimant was doing and earning pre-accident versus what we are intending to do, right? To reduce it to a 25%, a 50%. In some, some cases, even a 75% rate is enough of a reduction where the divide becomes too great. So we know that that's what is going to happen. And more importantly, the claimant's attorney knows that that's what we're doing, right? They see an IME report. Yep. They see that uh, a partial restriction is there, and they know what we're going to argue. So let's move to the hearing. The board realizes that uh, we have a hearing in place for this type of procedure. You sign in, uh, you get called into the hearing, and what does the claimant's attorney want to do at that point, generally speaking? Uh, They're going to attempt to uh, find a way to, number one, get our IME precluded if possible, uh, section 137 is uh, the carrier's little uh, gremlin, I guess. Um, so obviously, we want to at least review the IME reports to make sure that they're in compliance with Section 137 before the hearing uh, so that we're aware of any uh, possible hiccups going forward at the hearing. Uh, but that is definitely the claimant's uh, tool that they can use to defeat uh, a reduction based on our IME, even if the IME has done everything else appropriately, um, that can obviously undermine our uh, steps going forward on trying to get the claimant to go back to work. Um, They will also, claimant's attorneys also like to look at what restrictions the IME uh, has set forth in the IME report. Uh, Many times you will go to a hearing, uh, the The IME report may say 25% degree of disability, but they say that the claimant can uh, only perform less than sedentary work. Uh, This is somewhat of an exaggeration, but uh, it does happen. And then they may say that the lifting restriction is only five pounds. Uh, These would be restrictions that are inconsistent with the degree of disability that is being given by the IME doctor. Uh, And many judges will listen to it and in some, in some instances, a law judge may actually, they may reduce, but they may not reduce it down to the 25%. Uh, they may actually find a partial disability on their own. Um, so this, go, this goes back to the credibility of the IME, though, at well, the end of the day. Right. That's a great point, right? So you, you mentioned that the claimant's attorney is going to attack this IME report, yep. right? Because they know what's coming. And they're going to try to get the judge on their side by saying, look at all the problems that are wrong with this IME report. Yep. And to, to get a picture into how this is happening uh, to our viewers here, if it was the other way around, if we started the hearing and said, judge, look at the treating doctor's report, look at all the inaccuracies, look at all the typographical errors uh, and how these restrictions make him able to do his pre-accident job, what would the judge do there in every situation? Uh, 99% of the time, they will say that they're going to give the claimant's doctor the benefit of the doubt 
that the claimant can rely on the doctor's opinion of 100% degree of disability. Um, and unfortunately, uh, the workers' compensation system is designed to benefit the claimant, uh, not the insurance care most of the time. Uh, and unfortunately, I, it would be extremely rare if a law judge ever turned around and said that a treating doctor's opinion of 100% degree of disability um, is unsupported by the findings in the report, even though it happens all the time. I agree with you. They will, they will look at us and they'll say, okay, <clears throat> that's your opinion. Uh, we're going to keep it the way that the doctor says it. Whereas the claimant's attorney gets this free reign to attack and pinpoint all these little things about the IME report. Right. Happens every single day. Uh, I had a hearing just yesterday where that happened. Uh, you had a hearing very recently that kind of was the basis for this entire episode. But in theory, explaining uh, to our viewers and seeing how it's already unfair from the standpoint of claimant's attorney gets to do this, we don't get the same kind of um, uh, I guess uh, reward yeah. right of of getting that argument in place. All right. Now let's say the IME report uh, survives Section One Thirty Seven. Uh, the report is good enough on its face. What does the claimant attorney want to do then? If he can't get the IME report precluded, uh, so well, give me a hint here. I'm not sure exactly what you're looking for. Well, on the subject of. Uh, compensation rates, right? Uh, oh, what what I'm actually yeah, getting okay. towards is... Compromise rates? They, yeah. They want to make a deal. Understood. Why, why do they want to make a deal? Well, one, uh, something that's not... I, I don't know if it's well known, but uh, claims attorneys are not paid to do depositions. And uh, that is actually something that uh, they feel wastes their time because we force them to do depositions, which takes time away from them doing other tasks that uh, do give them money exactly so uh it discourages doing depositions is basically a way for us to put a little thorn in their side and make them do extra work that they're not going to be receiving any benefit from uh also obviously something that's uh not well known or uh is the fact that once benefits are reduced or suspended Many times, claimant's attorneys actually end up losing their client uh, because the claimant believes that the attorney has done something wrong, and all of a sudden there will be a uh, notice of a new attorney in the file. Uh, so reduction and suspension of benefits uh, disrupts the client uh, claim or the, the claimant attorney relationship on the claimant side. Um, so obviously, that's something that you know, claimants' attorneys want to discourage, so that is another reason why they love to uh, agree to compromise rates. What about um, a third reason? What about the fact that to say 100% disabled means that you can't do anything? How many claimants' attorneys, in the average case, really believe that their claimant really can't do a single job? It's very, very few amount of them. Like they, they, they know that their claimant can do something, and that's why they want to come to make a deal, along with the reasons that, that you uh, so delightfully put it. It's essentially making a deal gives them less work, but it also prevents the work that they're going to put in from actually giving a bad result to the claimant in the right. long run. Yep. Uh, who knows what promises are being made as far as rates and, and you know all this is uh, going on, but essentially they are making a deal. Now, when they make a deal, can you explain 
to our viewers, what is the difference between a tentative rate or in, in our industry, a TR versus a fixed partial disability, or again, in our industry, a TP. What are, what are the what are the differences there? So obviously, from a carrier's perspective, we always want a TP rate. That is a fixed rate um, that cannot be changed in the future. Theoretically, there are some instances where that can be changed. But for the most part, the rate itself, if it is a TP rate, uh, will stay fixed. And if you lock in a TP rate, um, outside of the current COVID restrictions, uh, typically a claimant is required to start looking for work as soon as they have uh, been found to have a partial disability. Um, and that creates additional litigation. It creates instances for the carrier to appeal. Um, so that actually gives us a lot of leverage. We're always looking to get TP rates. TR rates, on the other hand, unfortunately, really do not benefit the carrier. Um, if there's a TR rate, that can be adjusted. Theoretically, it can go down, but I don't think I've ever seen a TR rate <laughs> ever go down. It always goes up. Um, and that also creates future litigation because a lot of claimants' attorneys love to litigate prior TR rates. Even if it's two or three years down the road, you'll see this in cases where there's a schedule loss of use, there's no money moving, then all of a sudden what happens? Oh, they want to litigate TR rates from two years ago so that they can get a little bit of money moving to the claimant so they can get their attorney fee. Uh, so more often than not, we want to almost always avoid TR rates where possible. Uh, we want to avoid stipulating the TR rates. Um, yeah, so the tentative versus fixed, it's almost in the name of it, right? So putting it all together, right? Uh, they don't want to do the extra work. Uh, they know that they may have promised the claimant something, and maybe that leads to a change in counsel, which, you know, you're giving our viewers a little peek behind the curtain, which is actually kind of nice, right, to see, like, you know, exactly what's going on. And uh, they don't truly believe that the claimant really can't do anything. Right. They believe that the claimant can do something. And maybe sometimes they believe the claimant can do his pre-accident job. So they're going to come in and say, let's compromise, let's split it down the middle. And here's, here's where I kind of want to get on my soapbox a little bit, because splitting it down the middle means that 100% is a true anchor point. True. Yeah. And that is very, very rarely the case. If you're in a wheelchair, if you're hospitalized, if you're in a coma, if you cannot actually do something, which means if you're answering the phone, if you're using a computer, that means you can do something. You can uh, stuff right. envelopes. You can be a telemarketer. That means that you have a less than 100% disability. So on the surface, already we're dealing with an unfair anchor point to get us down to the middle. Second part is keeping it tentative. You're right. Keeping it open creates more litigation in the future, which means more money out of our clients' pockets, employers and carriers, more money to the claimant. So it's as if you're coming to a bargaining table and giving the other side a compromise option. Compromise means that we both get something out of it. Yeah. And they're not actually getting any wrong or like wrong, they're not getting any um, disadvantage out of it, right? Because what's their alternative? They re get reduced down to yep. the, the lowest possible rate. And here's where we are. So to all of our viewers, we've done this part where Treating doctor is at 100%. IME comes in with a partial disability. 
We file pleadings to get it before a workers' compensation law judge. The hearing gets called, and now you have a situation where a claimant's attorney is approaching you with the idea for a quote-unquote compromise. In your hearing, which just happened last week, two weeks ago, we're not going to name any names, but when we did not have the authority to make that deal, right? We're not going to spend uh, a carrier or employer's money without authorization to do so. What happened? The law judge advised me that uh, I cannot come into his part without authority because I represent the insurance carrier and it is my responsibility to come in to the hearing with authority to stipulate to a compromise rate. Obviously, uh, this is completely inconsistent with case law and statutory Well, let's forget law. that, actually, case law and statutory, right? Think about that. I mean, maybe for everyone who's listening that doesn't have a legal background, a judge is telling a party, you have the responsibility to agree to a deal that's proposed to you on the day of the hearing. Right. Not one that was given to you a day ago, a week ago, a month ago, when we just led this podcast off by saying claimants attorneys know what we're going to do. Right. So what they're going to do is they're going to sleek into this deal that hopefully gives them everything that they want and nothing of what we want, and then we're required to have authority? That's, that's what this judge is telling you. And it got worse. So how did it get worse? I can't imagine. It's, it, it already sounds awful. Tell, tell, tell them how it got he worse. actually penalized me for not having authority to stipulate. Um, he advised me that I was creating an unnecessary adjournment, and I was penalized. Um, obviously, this is an appealable issue, which we will be appealing, but regardless, uh, there is or there are some judges who are not necessarily worried about adjudicating cases objectively and fairly, uh, but are definitely there to attempt to benefit the claimant. Um, and this was an instance where, well, I'll say it's it's rare, but it does happen, and, and this is not the only time that this has happened to me. Um, but this is obviously, in my opinion, a judge that's overstepping their bounds, um, obviously showing a leniency, a very strong leniency towards the claimant, um, and is not looking to adjudicate the case fairly between both parties. I was not asking for anything unreasonable. It's very standard to ask for a reduction. Uh, it just did not go my way. And uh, and it's one thing, right, for a judge to misapply the law. I think that happens every day, right? <laughs> right uh, that's true. And to take a step further and penalize an argument that's rightful, right? Correct. For instance, if it was not rightful, why would the board set a hearing? Yep. Why would the board accept the RFA2? Why would the board accept the IME report? And why would the IME report not be precluded? If the IME report is not precluded, then everything else follows that we have a reduction in rate, we have development of the record with medical testimony, and we get a, a judicial decision. Clock turns, we all move forward with our lives. But to penalize is a little bit interesting. And to use the word unnecessary adjournment, you know, it almost makes me want to define the word necessary, right? Like saying that it's an unnecessary adjournment means that it would was, again, required for you to make a deal. It would have been necessary for you to make a deal. And when you don't make a deal, it's now an unnecessary adjournment right. 
enforcing the penalty. That's just a, a real look into how these things are being handled on an administrative level. You know, certainly that's not uh, the most polite way to do it, but it's also not the correct legal way to do it. Right. And uh, how how can how can employers and carriers combat that? Com- yeah. How how is if this is what's happening? What is a recourse? What is a recommendation? Because this is the type of thing that keeps the claimant out of work. Yeah. Because the claimant is sitting there with uh, a representative of the employer that wants to bring him back to work. And we know that there are statistics out there that say the longer you stay out of work, the less likely it is you're ever going to return to work. So the claimant sitting there and seeing that the judge penalizes the employer, that creates an even bigger rift between the employer and the claimant. Right. What do we do? What can employers do to combat that? Well, our primary tool, obviously, is the appeal. Um, I'll say for the purposes of, of that hearing, this is an older judge. Uh, maybe he feels that he is above the system to a certain extent, um, and maybe you know appealing this type of issue is not going to impact him going forward. But regardless, we always have to make an effort, um, and the only way to really do that um, is essentially to we we have to file the appeals. We have to try to almost condition the judge. And this is not just for this case, but going forward to avoid unnecessary penalties like this penalty was assessed against us. Um, and and unfortunately, too, typically this case is going to go right back before this judge and we're appealing that penalty. So he's going to be even less happy with us the next time around. And I, honestly, the funny thing is, is right, the judge ended up directing the depositions anyway because he knew that's what he had to do. So... It's a good at, point. At, at right? the end of the day, like, he knows he knows he had to reduce the rate, right. and he knows that he had to set it for medical testimony. Yeah, exactly. So he does that. <laughs> but what he really is penalizing you for is the work that he's going to have to do to review the deposition transcripts and make a decision. Because a deal prevents him from doing all of that. Right. A deal just puts him in his computer and do do on the rate, and then everything is is you know peachy keen for him moving on. But if he has to do a little bit of work in the name of bringing an employee back to work, which is, again, what the system is designed to do, that's where the problem lies. So you're right. The appeal is uh, you know, our tool to kind of combat that. I would agree with you there. But I think uh, the real takeaway from all of this, it's a dedicated effort from start to finish. Yep. Starting with a good IME report, right? Filing the right pleadings defending against Section 137 arguments, making the right arguments to reduce the rate, set it for medical testimony, and creating the kind of leverage to bring this person back to work. Right. Any final thoughts, Ian, on how that went? Because it's an unfortunate situation, but I think we can save the client from an unfortunate penalty because, uh, you know, it's just uh, really a situation that unfortunately happens too often. Right. Honestly... uh not to be overly confident, but do I believe that we will probably prevail on that appeal? Yes. Uh, and I'm not talking about the penalty. I'm saying that going forward, um, or rather I should, I misspoke. Will we prevail on the depositions to get the um, the rate reduced? I do think that we have a very strong position, and maybe that's why the judge was 
uh, a little hesitant. But uh, and, and this is something too that well, a lot of judges. That's even a case that that that's interesting in and of itself because it's it doesn't actually create problems for the claimant to have a trial because the judge can still rule for the claimant at the end of the day. True. So talking about the propensity or the, the potential to win versus the potential to appeal is certainly different. The appeal, I agree with you, we probably will win that appeal. Who knows what's going to happen out of that deposition, which makes it even scarier to think that a judge should know that he has that recourse right. to find for the claimant, but to instead penalize, it just seems like an archaic and uh, really you know, unfortunate situation. And I, I don't know if you'd agree with this, but I would say 75 to 80% of judges don't want to look like the bad guy. They want to uh, do good work, good, good deeds for the claimant. Um, and I would, uh, I think the majority of judges will find ways, if possible, if we, if we don't properly defend the case to find a way to benefit the claimant because they don't want to be the bad guy at the hearing. Um, so basically we, we provide arguments that make it straightforward and easy for the judge to find in our favor so it doesn't make them look like the bad guy. And if we do our job properly, we're basically making the, the judge's job easier, right? Yeah, I, I think that's a great way to, to kind of put a bow on it. The judge does not want to tell a claimant that you have to go back to work. Right. And, you know, you, you mentioned COVID restrictions. Uh, you know, we are opening up. I mean, we're, we're, we're doing this podcast live in the kill room. Uh, first time in over a year, which is amazing. Um, the board still has this idea that claimants do not have to look for work. I mean, uh, right now in the month of May, it's beautiful outside. Uh, I don't know any claimants that are knocking on doors looking for jobs as opposed to looking on their, their phones or their computers, uh, which, again, uh, is a, a story for another day and, like, maybe six prior podcasts that we've talked about it. But the point remains, you get a good IME report if regular non-litigation tactics aren't working, meaning the claimant's doctor who's not incentivized to release the claimant to a partial disability doesn't want to release. IME report, pleadings hearing performance in the hearing and then just having the ability to react uh, it's a dedicated effort from a to z and so for ian haberstroh uh, my name is christian Cison, reminding everyone here to defend from day one thank you everybody thank you christian